Welcome to PwC's accounting podcast series. I'm Heather Horn. In today's episode, we're going back to the basics to talk about discontinued operations. It's an area where we've been getting more and more questions, so I thought it was a good time to take a closer look at when DiscOps accounting applies and how it may impact financial statement users. To help us better understand and think through the reporting considerations, I'm joined by PwC partner Beth Paul and PwC director Steve Dolph, both from our national office. So with that, let's get started. So Steve, Beth, thank you so much for joining me today. Looking forward to a conversation about a topic where I know we're starting to get more questions, probably as a reflection of what's going on in the broader economy, and that's in the area of discontinued operations. But Beth, I thought before we got into the detail, it would be helpful to our listeners if you could just explain sort of the purpose of DiscOps financial statements and then why that might be of interest to the financial statement users. Of course. Happy to be here. Thanks, Heather. So essentially, the purpose of discontinued operations presentation is to provide users of the financial statements with information about the portion of the company that will continue separately from the portion that will be divested, whether that's through sale or spin. And the presentation provides users with comparable information for all periods presented, which helps users understand what the ongoing business will look like going forward. Okay. And then Beth, how does a company decide if it should present discontinued operations? Well, to report a discontinued operation, the disposal group must be a component. And a component doesn't need to be a legal entity or a subsidiary. Rather, it has separately identifiable cash flows that can be clearly distinguished from the rest of the company. A component could be a reporting segment, an operating segment, a reporting unit, or an asset group but it's typically not lower than the asset group. For a component or a group of components to qualify as a discontinued operation, it must either be held for sale at the balance sheet date or abandoned or spun off at the balance sheet date. And then the component must represent a strategic shift that has or is expected to have a major effect on the reporting entity's financial results. And then Beth, this is something we've talked about on past podcasts with respect to asset groups and how they fit into the impairment model. So can you correlate that model with the model you're talking about here in terms of identifying the level that you're looking at? So an asset group for impairments is the lowest level for which there's identifiable cash flows for that asset group that you're looking at for impairment. Whereas here, when you're looking at the disposal group, you're looking at what you're selling, what the disposal group is, and you're saying, does that have separately identifiable cash flows? And so typically to have separately identifiable cash flows, it's going to have to be at the asset group or above, because if you were below the asset group, then you wouldn't have had separately identifiable cash flows and you wouldn't meet this criteria. And then similar to the conversation we've had there, this is another place where it's helpful. You need to know your asset groups. And I think that's something we spent a lot more time talking about maybe now than ever before. So you don't want to get into the situation and not know what your asset groups are. Yeah. I mean, you certainly are going to have to think about whether or not you've got identifiable, separable cash flows for this disposal group. You know, if it's simply you're selling a corporate building, you're likely not getting to DiscOps because you don't have separately identifiable cash flows for like a corporate building by itself, as opposed to if you were selling your business where you make widgets or something there, you'd have separately identifiable cash flows likely. Okay. So then let me go back to something you said to begin with of when Discops would be applied. And Steve, I'm going to turn to you with this question, which is that Beth 
indicated that one of the ways a component could qualify for this would be if it met the held for sale criteria as of the balance sheet date. And so can you give us some highlights of how you would meet that criteria? Sure, Heather. So as you were alluding to, I think, you know, ASC 360, which is the long lived assets guidance, it has a, a different approach when you're considering the impairment of assets for which you have plans to sell those assets versus actually holding them for use in operations. And so to dive in, uh, the guidance includes six criteria that must be met as of the balance sheet date in order for your disposal group to qualify as held for sale. And so in the interest of time, I, I won't go into each of those criteria separately in detail. Um, but a few to specifically call out here, you need management or board approval of a commitment to the plan to sell the disposal group. Um, the disposal group needs to be ready for immediate sale in its current condition. And it needs to be probable that the group will qualify as a completed sale within one year. And so I encourage listeners to, uh, to reference ASC 360 for the complete list of criteria that need to be met in order to qualify for health for sale. Key point there is you have to meet all of those criteria, correct? That's right, Heather. Yeah, I want to stress that point that all six of those criteria must be met as of the balance sheet date in order for the disposal group to qualify and, and be reported as health for sale. Okay. And so then assuming we meet all those criteria, then what are the financial reporting implications for the disposal group? Yep. So from a measurement perspective, uh, the disposal group, which is now your unit of account, is measured at the lower of either your fair value, less your reasonable cost to sell the disposal group, or its carrying amount. And so when the disposal group's carrying amount is greater than its fair value, less cost to sell, you'd recognize an impairment loss for the difference between those two. One item to note when you're thinking about that step there, so if there are assets in the disposal group, that aren't within the scope of, of ASC 360, which is the long lived assets guidance. You know, so think about assets like your goodwill or your indefinite lived intangibles. Those assets would be tested for impairment first under the relevant accounting guidance before measuring your disposal group at fair value, less cost to sell. And so once your disposal group is classified as held for sale, uh, you'd stop depreciating and amortizing the long lived assets within the group. Um, and instead, those assets would be tested for impairment each reporting period. So then, Steve, before we go on to presentation, just a quick question from a measurement perspective. Is there any sort of rule of thumb where you typically see that companies are taking impairment losses when they recognize or when they identify a disposal group? Or is it hard to say depending on circumstances? Yeah, I'd, no rule of thumb per se. I'd say in the current environment where you have some businesses that are disposing of business segments that are maybe lost leaders uh, due to the economic conditions, uh, you know, I, we've certainly seen more uh, impairment losses for those businesses when they go to hell for sale. You know, however, on the other hand, you know, you have businesses that might be selling high growth business segments or, or whatever it may be, in which case there likely wouldn't be an impairment. So no rule of thumb um, and really facts and circumstances based, uh, you know, depending on the company. But obviously, an important step not to skip in this process. That's right. All right. And then how about from a presentation perspective? Sure. Yeah. So from a financial statement presentation perspective, uh, the assets and liabilities of the disposal group are separately presented from other assets and liabilities of the company on the face of the balance sheet, and they're labeled as held for sale. 
And uh, there are also other specific disclosure requirements for those assets and liabilities classified as held for sale that companies will need to make in the financial statements. You know, for example, um, companies will need to disclose the major classes of assets and liabilities classified as held for sale um, if they aren't presented on the face of the balance sheet. And then, Steve, I know for a lot of people, this is something they won't deal with regularly. So what are some of the frequently asked questions we are apt to see from companies dealing with these issues? Yeah. So one of the more common questions that we receive is what exactly constitutes a commitment to a plan to sell, which is one of the health for sale criteria that's required to be met. And so this question is especially common um, when approval of the sale by the board is sought by management. And so when it's a company's policy to require board approval for any significant disposal transactions, or if management seeks approval of the board absent a specific policy, the commitment criteria generally isn't met until the the approval is actually obtained from the board. And so this is true even when management believes it's probable that the board will ultimately approve the sale. However, you know, in certain situations, the criterion can be met before the the quote unquote final board vote. And so, for example, when the board's been significantly involved in the sales process, they've approved the general sales parameters and management expects to locate a buyer that meets those approved parameters. You know, this could constitute a commitment to a plan. And so I'd say in either scenario, uh, it's definitely important that companies um, you know, formally document how they arrived at that that commitment to a plan and and how it's been approved by by those that need to approve it. All right, and then it sounds like it really will vary by company and facts again, facts and circumstances depending on a particular entity's governance approval policies. So it's something definitely to understand. Steve, any other insights to share? Yeah, so another common question we receive relates to what exactly it means for a disposal group to be available for immediate sale in its present condition. And so to drill in on that, you know, whether a disposal group that's being used by the seller can meet this criterion. Classic example is a manufacturing facility that's being marketed for sale. Um, however, there's, you know, a significant backlog of customer orders that need to be fulfilled before the sale can close. And so in this scenario, uh, the disposal group probably wouldn't be available for immediate sale and wouldn't meet this criterion uh, since there is that significant backlog of orders that need to be filled prior to closing the transaction. And so the need to fulfill those orders could potentially delay the timing of the sale. And as a result, you know, the facility wouldn't be ready for, for immediate sale. Alternatively, if the facility was being sold along with the customer order, orders, um, the criterion might actually be met since the need to fulfill those orders wouldn't affect the timing of the closing of the sale. Okay. And then let me ask another question, which is one I know I had when I was dealing with this issue in the past, which is what are the implications if the criteria for held for sale are met after the balance sheet date, but before the financial statement issuance date? Yeah, it's it's a great question. And and to your point, Heather, one that we get a lot. So in the scenario that you described, uh, the company wouldn't be allowed to classify the disposal group as held for sale as of the balance sheet date. And the reason for that is that the accounting guidance is clear that all of the held for sale criteria need to be met as of the balance sheet date to qualify for held for sale classification and presentation. And so as a result, in the scenario you described, the disposal group would continue to be reported as held and used until the subsequent reporting period when all of the criteria are actually met. Okay. Obviously, disclosure will be important in those circumstances. Okay. So then, Steve, in a scenario then where you've made, you've met the criteria after your end um, for help for sale, 
what are the implications for your year-end reporting? And would you need to think about impairment at that point? Yeah, potentially. And so if if management, you know, meets the health for sale criteria after the balance sheet date and they know that they're going to sell the disposal group at a loss, I think it's important to go back to your year-end reporting to make sure, you know, one, that there were no triggering events that occurred during the current reporting period that that you're issuing or I'm sorry, that you're issuing financial statements on. Um, and also that there were no underlying facts or conditions that you should have known as of the balance sheet date that would potentially indicate that impairment existed. And so to the extent that those existed, um, you know, you test the long-lived asset for impairment as of your balance sheet date, but those would be tested under the held and used model versus under the health for sale model. Okay, that's helpful. So then Beth, let me turn back to you. And obviously, Steve and I have been talking about this held for sale model. How does that interact with the discontinued operations guidance that you and I started with? Yeah, so Heather, meeting the held for sale criteria is really step one in applying the discontinued operations model. Once a company determines that a disposal group meets the held for sale criteria, they would look to discontinued operation guidance to determine whether the disposal of the component represents a strategic shift that has or is expected to have a major impact on the financial statements. Okay, so then couple of things in there I definitely want to hone in on more, specifically strategic shift and major impact. So let's start with strategic shift. How should you consider that? Sure. So there's really no bright lines and no single factor is determinative, but the standard does provide some examples of what might constitute a strategic shift. And it talks about things like a major geographic area or a line of business, even a significant equity method investment, or other major parts of an entity. So maybe if you take an example, right, a company that operates in the U.S., you know, might determine that each existing region, like the Northeast, for instance, is a strategic shift, whereas a multinational company may conclude that a continent such as North America represents a major geographic area and a strategic shift. So as you can tell through my example, the assessment of what constitutes a strategic shift is really going to be based on the company's specific facts and circumstances. Okay. And then Beth, you also referenced the concept of major. And so what should listeners think about in determining whether or not that criterion is met? Is this equivalent to material or is it something different? Great question. So you're right. Once a company determines that the disposal is a strategic shift, it has to think about whether the disposal has a major effect on the company's operations and financial results. And similar to strategic shift, the guidance doesn't provide any bright lines for determining what is a major effect. So companies are going to want to think about what are their key financial performance metrics, and they're going to think about metrics such as revenues, gross margins, operating income, net income, you know, operating cash flows, maybe even non-GAAP metrics like EBITDA, and think about whether this component will have a major impact on those amounts. You know, when thinking about the impact, we also think you should spend more time thinking about the impact on the most recently completed periods and the current periods as opposed to, you know, going back in history. Okay. And so then, Beth, understanding no bright lines, you also use the term major effect. So what can you tell us about that? Right. So the standard does provide a few examples of major impact, and it talks about the sale of a product line that represents 15% of total revenues, um, the sale of a geographic area that represents 20% of total assets, or the sale of one type of a company's store formats when that store format contributed significantly to net income. But again, the evaluation of both the strategic effect and the major effect criteria are judgmental and really depend on the company's specific facts and circumstances. So then, Beth, I know we talked about these separately, but they in a way seem intertwined because if I think about this, 
if something is a strategic shift that indicates it's likely major and versus if I conclude it's not very big, then it would kind of be hard to argue that this is a strategic shift for the company. Is that a fair way to think about those? I think that's fair. I mean, I think oftentimes they do go together. You have a strategic impact and major effect at the same time. There could be situations where perhaps, you know, a company was thinking about going in a new strategic direction and decided then that 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 really wasn't working. And so it hadn't become sort of a major part of their business yet. But often, I think you're right, they're going to travel in sort of pairs, they're going to be a strategy that has a major impact to be the strategic shift. Okay. And then I think the point that you also are looking ahead more than back might also mean maybe they could potentially be disconnected, right? Because maybe something in the future is going to be major or not. So is that possible? That's right. And and conversely, right, something could have been major in the past, but has already begun sort of a wind down phase. And we wouldn't say now that it does have a major impact. And uh would not necessarily get to discop criteria. Okay. So then let's move, um, Steve, back to you to talk about presentation disclosure. And so assuming we kind of run through and you have a disposal group and it meets all the health for sale criteria, and then the disposal of the component represents a strategic shift that's expected to have a major effect. So lots of things. Then if I meet all of those, what's the impact on the financial statements? Yep. So in the fact pattern you described, uh, the component would qualify for discontinued operations. And so a couple of key areas that will be impacted uh, include on your balance sheet. So you'd separately present the current and non-current assets and liabilities of the discontinued operation as held for sale. And in your income statement, you'd report the results of the discontinued operation, including any income tax effects separately from continuing operations. And so if you picture your P&L, this is presented as a separate component of income after income from continuing operations, but before net income. Okay. And then, Steve, just thinking that through, it seems fairly straightforward to figure out if an asset or liability belongs to that particular uh, component. But how do you think about costs and allocation on the income statement? Yeah, great question. Uh, And again, one that we get a lot. So uh, the standard requires that only those direct operating expenses, the component, that can be reasonably segregated from continuing operations should be included in discontinued operations. And so thinking about this, remember the goal of discontinued operations is to separately present those operations that won't continue after the disposal. So applying that concept, you know, examples of costs that could qualify to be included in discontinued operations are, are those such as direct personnel expenses for the component that's being disposed, impairment of long-lived assets of the component, including any initial and subsequent measurement at fair value, less cost to sell, uh, any lease-related costs of the component, and the income tax expenses of the component. You know, on the other hand, any indirect expenses, you know, so such as like allocated corporate overhead, those wouldn't qualify for inclusion in discontinued operations because they're not, you know, direct operating expenses of the component. And then finally, just one item to note that I want to touch on here. Uh, there was a new accounting standard issued in December of 2019. That provides some clarifying guidance on intraperiod tax allocation. And so basically what that means is, is how you allocate your income tax expense between your continuing operations and your discontinued operations. And so I definitely encourage our listeners to check that out as the guidance is effective in 2021 for public companies, but it can be early adopted um, as of right now for all companies. Beth, let me ask you one quick question before I go on to the other statements. So just thinking about where Steve said this was on the income statement, 
I immediately went to EPS and would I present separately EPS for continuing operations and disc ops or am I still just presenting one number? That's right, Heather. You will have to present separate EPS for both continuing operations and for discontinued operations as well as for net income. So you'll show those components broken out. Okay, that's helpful. So then, Steve, let me go back to you for the other statements. What do we need to think about then for cash flow statement? Yeah, so for the statement of cash flows, there's actually two options for presentation. Uh, first, and what I'd say is the most common option, is you present or disclose the operating and investing cash flows of the discontinued operation um, separately. And so most companies present this directly on the face of the statement of cash flows. Second or alternative, and what I'd say is the less common option, you could present or disclose the depreciation, amortization, uh, capital expenditures, and significant non-cash operating and investing activities of the, of the discontinued operation. Again, I know that's a lot, but but that's a much less common approach based on what I've seen in the past. And so in either case, um, although the presentation disclosure of financing activities of the, of the discontinued operation isn't required by the guidance, it isn't precluded. And generally, uh, companies will still present this activity separately as well. Uh, another question on presentation. So would I just reflect this in the period that I determined that I've met the criteria and then on a go forward, or would I also reclassify prior periods? Now, really good question and a really important point. So companies are required to reflect discontinued operations presentation for all periods presented once the criteria have been met. And so in other words, if your component qualifies for discontinued operations in 2020, you present the operations, the cash flows, the assets and liabilities as discontinued operations, not only in 2020, but also for all prior periods presented in the financial statements as well. Okay. And then are there any special considerations for registration statements? Yeah. Yeah. So when, when historical financial statements are reissued, you know, for example, to your point, Heather, in connection with a registration statement, Similarly, all prior periods presented within that registration statement would also need to be recast to reflect the discontinued operations. And so this is true even when the discontinued operations criteria are met during an interim period where the related annual financial statements haven't yet been issued, uh, but a registration statement is being filed during that period. And so this is one that companies often lose sight of, and it can result in some timeline pressures. Um, if the requirement isn't top of mind. So I just wanted to make sure that we call that out. Okay, that's helpful. And then any final thoughts from a disclosure perspective, if you're dealing with a disc op situation? There's a handful of disclosures that companies require to make, you know, including if there's any significant continuing involvement with the component with the component that's being disposed. Um, you know, all of those are outlined in our financial statement presentation guide, um, as well as within within the discontinued operations guidance. So, to the extent that companies do have discontinued operations, I definitely recommend that you look there. Okay. And maybe I would just add, Heather, to remind people that they have to go back and look at other footnotes, for instance, the PP&E footnote, because those assets are now in your assets held for sale line and not in the PP&E line. And so that footnote needs to be adjusted accordingly. That is a good reminder because definitely something that people may not think about until right at the end when they're trying to tie everything together. So that's, that's a good one, Beth. So then I guess just to wrap things up today... Where should people go if they're dealing with this and want more information? Yep. So uh, chapter five of our PP&E guide has guidance uh, that we talked about today for health for sale accounting and the related impairment model. So I definitely recommend listeners check there. And then also chapter 27 of our financial statement presentation guide 
as the discontinued operations guidance, the criteria, and all of the presentation disclosure requirements that you need to have in your financial statements. Okay, good. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the insight. Before we wrap up today, though, I always like to end with a lighter question. And we're already into fall, but it's still on my mind because it's still nice here in Los Angeles. If you are sort of team summer and you're sad that summer is getting wrapped up and we're moving into fall or that you're really excited to finally see some cooler weather. So, Steve, I'll start with you. I am absolutely team summer all day, every day. <laughs> I'm going to miss the, the warm weather. But, uh, you know, the fall is not too bad. But not looking forward to the winter up here in Massachusetts. There you go. How about you, Beth? I am also team summer. I am a New Jersey girl and beach is my life. And so I'm going to miss being at the Jersey Shore. Yes, I know. I can picture the sunshine and sand now. So anyway, really appreciate the insight. And thanks again for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for joining me today. And before we get to our preview of what's coming, I have exciting news. As you may have seen in our newsletter last week, we now have a dedicated email address for all your content feedback. As you know, we love to hear from you. So please reach out to us at us.content at pwc.com with thoughts, ideas, and suggestions. And please join me back here this Thursday for the second episode in season two of our What's Next in Tech podcast series. This week, we're talking about citizen-led innovation and how it'll not only change the way your work gets done, but how you can do it faster, easier, and with less worry about mistakes. So that you never miss an episode, subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcast. And to stay up to date on all the latest content, let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.